Welcome to Restart Radio Show, a very different show about gadgets on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is a different show because unlike most, we do not focus on the new shiny, shiny things to buy. We focus on the value and the stuff we already have. The Restart Project aims for a shift of behavior towards a more sustainable and happier relationship with electronics. Our monthly community electronics repair events here in London are just the beginning. My name is Ugo Vallauri from the Restart Project, and today I'm joined by Alistair Davis from the Arribada Initiative. Alistair is a conservation technologist who's been working across the whole world, we can say, uh, for over 10 years. Uh, Alistair, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I wanted to bring you to the show for a long time. We've known each other now for a few years, uh, and uh, I really like how, of course, you work with technology, but you seem to have a very holistic view around what is the role of technology into what is ultimately an environmental tragedy in the making. C can you give us a little bit of context about what is conservation and why is technology potentially part of the solution? Yeah, definitely. So I've been a conservation technologist for, as you said, about 10 years now. And that's taken me to a number of destinations around the world. And essentially, using, te using technology is solving a problem in the field. It's often a researcher or a scientist saying to you, I want to go and prove that something's happening, so an environmental response or a change, or potentially they're concerned that an animal may be disappearing. So a lot of my work has been working in the illegal wildlife trade, for example, or the anti-poaching um, uh, movement to try and stop the decline of rhinos and elephants because we will lose them. They will go extinct if we don't cut this problem. So I've been looking at how technology can solve that or even suggest to governments and policymakers that we can prove that if you don't take action, that we're going to basically lose it as a species on our planet. So I, because I have a background in uh, working ICT, in information communication technologies in development, uh, I've, I've seen many times this idea that technology will fix a problem, and I'm skeptical by, by default. Uh, but can you give us some examples of how technology has helped potentially raise the profile or helping raise campaigns and uh, call to actions? Oh, yeah, definitely. So one of my favorite species is the sea turtle. And it'd be great if everyone on the planet could experience just holding a young sea turtle because they're such a fantastic charismatic species and early on i got involved in sea turtle tracking so essentially you're using technology to put a gps transmitter on the turtle and it tells you where it goes and you can use this to build spatial maps and prove where the turtles are nesting where they're feeding and where you need to protect them um, the complexity is that to tag a green sea turtle it's been astronomically expensive like five thousand dollars for one tag which forces you out of getting any kind of data at scale. Maybe you know where one turtle goes, but what about 10 or 20? And you need that kind of data to prove that a marine protected area, so a space where all the turtles naturally um, nest and, and live within, has to be protected. So I started trying to break through those barriers and, and question why it's so expensive and isn't there a better way of doing this? How could we start to use open practices and how could we as a community build more accessible, repairable, accessible um, technologies so we could get the same data and solve the same problem, but, but do it together and not just rely on essentially buying tech off the shelf 
and spending our very limited resources in the conservation world on trying to answer a question that we all desperately wanted to answer. And uh, you you mentioned that the open processes can can help in potentially reducing some of the costs. Uh, so does technology used to be a lot more expensive to do some of these tasks and you found ways to potentially reduce that substantially from what I understand. Yeah, so the way I saw it was I was involved in the, the maker movement. So I was playing with little um, Raspberry Pi computers that you may be familiar with or Arduinos. And on the other side, there was a very expensive professional world, which was a tool that you could go and buy off the shelf. And there was no bridge between the two of them. So you could either basically sit back and try and access the funds and work on the funding to go and get your very small selection of uh, expensive fabricated tools. Or you could go to the makerspace and hope that you could get the quality and the experience from that world and apply it to the field. But there was no one sitting in the middle saying, we're going to help that happen. We're going we're gonna to take away the inaccessibility and we're going to take the makerspace movement and merge them together into one. So that's what I've essentially been doing recently with the Arabada Initiative. And the word Arabada too, as people often question me, what, what does that mean? It's a term given to the, for the, to the mass nesting event of the olive ridley turtle. So many thousands of these turtles, again, you can see my uh, fascination with sea you turtles. Love turtles. <laughs> they hang out in the ocean and they all nest on the same day. So the same, so the same nesting period is, is that night. So I wanted to coin that term and say, why can't we as a community of many thousands of users work together to solve a problem, just as the CETA has been doing for millennia. And um, really, by essentially sitting in the middle of those two worlds, we can sit there and say, as an entity, as a, as a charity, we will continue to share the knowledge on. So we'll say, here's a platform, here's what you need to get you to, not from the start at A, but the start at Y. And the Z part is you putting it in the field. So I've been working on that and looking at how we can essentially use open practices, tools and principles and share this in documentation and make sure the devices that we create are repairable. So instead of assuming that you can uh, start a fabrication lab in a small island west coast of Africa, we're saying, sure, that that is a great future to look at, but what can we do now? How can we be responsible developers of technology? How can we develop an enclosure? for that tag to go in, but you can actually screw, using a normal screw and a screwdriver, replace an entity and put it back instead of needing six or seven tools to do it. So all of these designs and this movement is fundamentally what I feel we need to be better conservationists as well, to do more and answer more questions. And it's, it's something that I've essentially st stepped out of my day job to do. So I became a Shuttleworth Fellow from the Shuttleworth Foundation to spend all my time, 100% of my time, just trying to tackle this problem. And it's been an amazing journey for the last uh, the last year and a half now. So going back to the turtles, uh, I've been lucky enough to see not the real thing, but a video with uh, like a direct view that the turtle has when swimming in and out of the ocean mm -hmm. as, as part of one of your projects. Now, why was that important? And... I believe that was in uh, Principe, 
It was, yeah. yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about why there and uh, what, what are you trying to achieve with that project? Yeah. And, and then we can talk about uh, repairability, which, yeah. as you know, is our bread and butter. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. So you're talking about a project where we put an optical camera on the tag. So we wanted to see at first hand through video clips what it was like for a turtle from a behavior point of view. But interestingly, we were also looking at plastic. And you may see uh, there's been a lot of talk at a minute about the problem plastic has faced uh, or is facing humanity. Absolutely. And the oceans are uh, kind of, for me, seeing what's at the bottom of the ocean, it's a mess. Like you go to pristine beaches, the beach itself may be quite clean. When you get into the water, there's plastic debris, plastic bags, waste, fishing nets. Um, it's a huge problem that we need to clean up. And it's a massive problem that's going to take a long time. But by using accessible um, tags that we put uh, cheap video cameras on, so we used a Raspberry Pi, in fact, a Raspberry Pi Zero. So many of you may have these at home. We built that because it's, it's cheap and accessible into this tag. And we've got footage of the actual marine waste. So plastic bags, we can look at plastic ingests. So we can see, are the turtles eating the bags? Because they mistake them for jellyfish. A plastic bag floating around a transparent one. They mistake them for jellyfish. And the juveniles are basically the end up at the center on Prince Bay Island. And I saw last week, the biopsies, plastic bags completely full through the whole small intestine, full intestine. And these are juveniles, like two years, three years of life. And to find that and see it and see all these turtles being picked up by fishermen full of plastic is a terrible thing to, to witness. So we've, we're starting to record the actual footage. And the great thing is the local community, so the kids are doing the annotation. So they're looking through the video footage and on the, in their own time, identifying the types of plastic, like is it from a local supermarket? Is it from um, a local um, beverage manufacturer? So they can relate their daily life to what's in the ocean on their doorstep. And we feel that's a really positive step forward because we want to make them the future instigators of this, the, of the use of tech. So they will see a reason for them to deploy the tags, for them to pull the data off, for them to present it to their own government and say, we've got to, we've got to solve this problem. And that's fundamentally important too. Community ownership has to, has to be promoted because if we're ever going to tackle a problem at scale, the community has to own the issue. So in terms of the overall movement of this uh Turtles, your your system allows tracking where they exactly are going and so kind of relate the video footage in this case with where exactly mm -hmm. this was taken. Uh, does that link with an interest of local communities in pushing for policy change oh, yeah. for uh, marine preservation? Yeah, massively. Because it's the same um, philosophy. If you turn up and say, where you've been fishing for the last 10 years, we're going to put a marine protected area on this space. No more fishing. That's a huge change for the local community. And you have to really think about their livelihood and how that affects them. So by providing solid evidence and data and showing that because a species in your area is adversely affected, like say it's being caught in fishing nets or the plastic waste that is coming from a local river system is affecting it, you just have to show them that this is an issue, and then ask, ask the question, how can we work together to solve it? And that is the community involvement part. Because then if you hand the technology to them and say, you use this to prove where the turtles are, or to get a sense of not just turtles, but how you're using your own marine environment, we will help you then 
manage that in a sustainable way. So you can fish at certain times of the year or certain zones may be moved to allow juvenile fish to, to replenish. And you're, you're basically helping them manage their own protected space. And by leaving that technology with them too, and then allowing them to use it in their own right, so they can say, well, we're going to go and uh, use it in a different part of the island we've never done before. That's, that's great because then you're giving them the tool they need for them to look at what sustainability means over the next 10, 15, 50 years because it will change. Fish stocks will change. Ocean currents will change. Climate change is a massive problem for island-based communities. So we need, we need to instill the sense of community ownership so they can have a voice. And previously, this wasn't simply possible because the costs per tag were just... Cost, Skillshare, what if your tag breaks? Can you, can you pop open the case? Can you switch in a new board? It was, it was basically, you would have to send that back to the United States of America, get a new battery, $500,000. It was basically impossible to do at a community-based level. And we've been trying to say... Why is that impossible? And what's changed with your intervention? What's the cost of one of these tags now? Uh, One-tenth the cost now. One-tenth. So, yeah. So a $3,000 tag, we're doing 300 And the great thing is that's half of that is just the enclosure. Then the electronics inside are, are from the maker movement. So we're using accessible boards. So it's cheap to do uh, swap outs and replacement parts. And the... The interesting thing we had to look at too is responsible design. So like I was saying before, in terms of if you have a tag and it's very difficult to repair it in your own right, if you need specialist tools and you're on a tropical island, even if your intention's there and you want, you want to help people in the community, you're going to get an email or something saying, I can't do this because I, I can't access this bit or I need you to mill me this. or I need you. And it, then you sit back thinking, oh yeah, like can they actually really command and can you know have access to this to this tool have we given them the skills and the resources they need to do this so we, we've been trying to design it in a way where it uses very traditional screws um you know um metal plates and things that can be milled locally nothing too specialized so it is a tool that is you know is accepted by the community and they don't feel a lack of confidence that they really can use it and obviously the argument around uh, making technology cheaper is that it potentially opens up uh, for a lot of unnecessary consumption of the same technology. Mm. And ha have you thought about this aspect of, of your work? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> the, same, um, the same point is raised in what is, what is in the technology. So in that, in that electronic PCB board, so the little green boards you see inside, and all the components that go within it, where did they come from? It's lots of precious minerals um, that are mined in very environmentally sensitive areas. And I feel that there's a lack of transparency too as to where it does come from. So when I think about how can a community really look after um, and control their destiny in how they use and consume technology, we have to be transparent and say, here's where we believe it comes from. Here's how you can be better. Here's how you can source ethical components. Here's how you can repair the unit. And as you stated too, if we want to scale up our effort and solve more conservation challenges, that does fundamentally mean more tech in the field, which is an environmental question. And also, it's a question about if we want to share our resource, so the conservation community is perfect at doing this, 
There's no reason that you can't take a successful project, which is used a tool, and share it and say, hey, do you want to use what we've used for the last five years in your own project? We have no financial gain from this. We've, we have no profit, except we want you to be successful in solving your conservation challenge. We want to promote that as well, which means the reusability and the sharing of the tech. And because it is cheap, that often makes it a lot more accessible to do. Because if, if you said to me, can I borrow your 10 tags and they're 10,000 pounds each? You'd be like, a bit hesitant about that. If I said, it's, you know, it's, it's a few hundred quid, go for it. We've been able to, you know, designate a marine protected area. It's a lot more accessible. You are, you are listening to Restart Radio on Resonance 104. Point four FM, and we're here with Alistair Davis talking about conservation technology. Now, your experience with uh, repair-related issues and so maintenance and durability of these products—what wh have you learned from it so far? I think I've learned that there's a there's a common perception that things are easier than you would initially make out for them to be. And that comes down to, if you think about documentation, think about how you use your phone today. A lot of us buy a phone off the shelf, we turn it on, we don't read any kind of documentation, no instructions, we jump in, we use the operating system, we, and we kind of expect what we're going to get from that device. Now, in my sector, in introducing technology into communities across the globe, um, some communities don't even have people. Antarctica. It's very difficult to introduce uh, penguins <laughs> with technology. But um, you have to think about how can you minimize that um, complexity and how can you make a tool so accessible that they can use it with minimal instructions, but they're still fundamentally available. And that may mean without an internet connection. It may mean that the knowledge is shared locally. So how can you um, create key influences in local communities that will share on that knowledge. And it's really important to think about that. Who is your voice? Who is your documentation walking around that local commu community? If you don't have it, then where will anyone get it from? And speaking of penguins, I wanted to play a little clip and then you can explain to us what it is about. <laughs> So, Alistair, you've recently visited Antarctica uh, for a project linking the future of king penguins mm -hmm. with climate change. C can you tell us a bit more about what's happening there and why you're working on it? Yeah, definitely. So this is a project with Tom Hart from Oxford University, and he has an initiative called Penguin Watch, and he watches penguins. He places time-lapse cameras, so these are cameras that take a photo at set duration, and he watches penguins to see how well they're doing. So how well the chicks are doing, are they surviving, how um, fat their parents are, um, are they moving, are they migrating to different locations, are they leaving earlier, coming back? There's so many questions you can get from really granular photographic data. And his problem for a long time has been, again, scale and cost. So the clip you heard is 250,000 penguins. So. <laughs> 
in that clip we were um, standing up at the top of the colony, looking down. And when if you ever get a chance to go, I mean, this is South Georgia, so it's middle of nowhere. Um, a fantastic place. You literally turn up on the boat and it's like arriving on another planet. Um, looking at this colony and you're, you're, you're deploying, you know, five or six cameras and you think we're going to need a hell of a lot more cameras here to really get a sense of this. And technology has been used to do um, uh, re, um, satellite observation as well. You can count penguins from space now. But Tom specifically is looking at the really granular data. He wants to see that chick really close up and see how well it's doing. And for him to do that, he needs access to more affordable technology, so reduce the cost. He needs to be able to do more with it. So again, the functionality of a, of a device you buy, it's often programmed or set up to do one job well. So you may get frustrated and, and ask, oh, if only it could do this, if only it could take you know, pictures at a certain time of season. And these frustrations are what fundamentally um, sets me up in terms of how I help scientists in the field because the emails I get are often, I really wish this device would do this. Why doesn't it? And you, you know, go through the same story. Well, you know, there's a lot of reasons. And, and let uh, me guess, also perhaps because penguins tend to be uh, the mascot for Linux. <laughs> By the way, it's World Penguin Day coming up on the 25th of April. Yeah. Let me guess, open source software comes to the rescue potentially <laughs> in these cases. It, it does. In fact, yeah, we, we used um, um, uh, an open source OS in this case to create a time-lapse camera for Tom that he could control. So it wakes up and it does seasonal variation, which means you can say when it's the, um, the chick season, take way more photos a day compared to one an hour. Because all the off-the-shelf cameras are just set to how many photos do you want? And there's one variable you can change, one setting, which is per hour, per minute, per day. We changed it. We said, well, we'll just create a software script that you can uh, control yourself. And now he takes as many photos as he wants in the, in the right season so he can get the data he needs. And in the winter, when he doesn't need it, the camera slows right down, which means he can deploy for way longer, like three, four, five years on the ice. And that is a massive change for him because he's got control over that. If we didn't step into that space and say, we'll make the cameras cheaper, we'll get more control out of it, then he would have to exert way more effort, spend way more time. This is an incredibly difficult remote place to get to. You know, you can't just pop down there and change your SD card on your camera. It's in Antarctica. And why is it crucial, so crucial right now, to help learn more about the patterns of these colonies? It's time. So if you look at how climate change is affecting them over time, and you scale forward what their life will be like in, say, 10, 20 years, there's, there have been some predictions that the entire colony in South Georgia could collapse. And that is a really important factor we need to take on. Because if we can understand the rate of decline, or we can affect policy once again. So commercial fisheries that are fishing for krill, and krill is the food source of the penguins. If we can prove that our fishing of krill is having an adverse effect, then we can potentially do something about it and take pressure off that species. Because we're, you know, climate change is a massive, massive problem we all have to face. And it's it's very difficult to stare into the abyss and say, how can we solve this? But we all proactively do what we can. We're trying to say, can we use technology and can we make it accessible and more um, and importantly answer more quickly so we can say, yes, there is a problem and act upon it and not look back and say, you know, if only we'd have if only we'd had 200 more cameras, we could have realized that that colony was going to collapse. 
We really need to know this. One of the problems with all these connected devices, or some people call them Internet of Things devices, and by the way, it was IoT Day yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, one of the problems is the durability of these devices, not just when they break down, but sometimes something changes in the software or the original developer is no longer available, probably especially with maker uh, movement projects. And at times, sadly, also not with such projects. Uh, we shared the example of um, the smartwatches like the Pebble, which is now no longer supported by its new parent company, Fitbit. And a lot of people sympathize for these issues. How are you approaching this issue? Uh, I believe you've been working on another, yet again, another project yeah. called the Audiomoth. Can you mm -hmm. tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, this is a nice example. So the Audiomoth is a very cheap acoustic recorder and it was developed by PhD candidates. And when you're a PhD candidate, you're, you're solving a problem, you're working on a defined solution. And in their case, they produce this really cheap accessible audio acoustic recorder. But um, there's no remit for them to go off and start up a, you know, spin out a startup or create a company and sit there for the next five years distributing it. They just want it to be used. It's completely open source. It's made by uh, open acoustic devices. And I was chatting to the team and they, they, they approached the, the Arabado initiative and said, could we help them distribute it? Could we help them do all of the jobs, like the support side of it, questions about how it can be used, because they don't have the time or the resources to, to do it either. And it beckoned the question that they did want to move on to a future job, potentially even emigrate, move away. They just didn't have the time or they wanted to go and um, spend their efforts on a new project. Who was going to look out for it? Who was going to be there and support it? So what we did is we came up with a model where we would pool together a community pot of funding. So we started to distribute them. We've now got over 1,600 out there, listing for all manner of animals. Someone's using it for grasshoppers. It's quite unique. Many are using it for bats. So it's so accessible, you can listen to bats in your back garden now. So it's $27. Um, that's, that's great. Open source, you can buy one today if you, if you want to do it in your own, in your but, own time. But had you wanted to buy just one, it would have been 20 times more. Yeah, we used group aggregation. So this is where minimum order quantity comes in. So if you want to go buy one today, very, very expensive. So what we did is we got everyone together and we set up these group buyers and we advertised it and say, everyone, if you want one device, pop it on the list here, and we hit our target when we hit it every single time. It's such a popular device. Then everyone gets it for that cheap cost, and it sounds like a kind of shopping channel. But the difference is we're sitting in the middle, and we pool these resources. So when once we've completed that order, we take a little bit from each device, so a few dollars here, and then we have this pot. So if anyone in the open community wants to come along and say, I've identified a bug, or a firmware issue and it really needs to be fixed, it affects everyone. We actually have real money to say, this can be used for the good of a device and everyone can update, everyone can benefit. And that's the really important bit, having a community owned uh, funding re revenue. So it provides a way to support the ongoing development and maintenance as yeah. well from your side. Exactly, and we don't have a profit incentive. We don't need to run off and start uh, a new company. And that is important. I have a final question and uh, it is, how do you see the appearance of all these much cheaper devices? Is it incentivizing a whole new legion of potentially conservation-minded people to, to get involved? Yeah. Someone asked me this the other day because they said, with the Audiomoth again, they said, 
that means I can go into my garden and listen to the songbirds. And I said, it does. And he said, that's great, because it used to cost me about $700. I think really what's interesting here is that with access to tech like this, the curious people out there, the people who have always wanted to get into that space and have felt that they were restricted in some way, or it was a kind of professional zone which they would have to either dedicate all their time to or just never really, never really enter, they are now able to do so. And there are a lot of curious people getting access to this tech, and I would hope that their curiosity leads to them becoming uh, influencers in the future and spurring on that we should conserve songbirds in the UK, that we should uh, look at bat decline and so on, because now they can. They can listen to this and uh, these sounds in their own garden. And that's really important too, because if you think about how we're going to solve problems together, you have to be connected to it. You have to want to save wildlife. You have to appreciate how fantastic and amazing it is. And if I can help do that, then I'm a happy man. Well, thank you so much for joining us and good luck with all these adventures, I guess. I'm thank you a little much. bit envious of all the crazy places where you get to go with your projects. You can find out more about his work and we'll post videos on thereestarproject.org, our website, and you can follow our other activities on social media at the Restart, at Restart Project. And thanks to Optonoise and Cassini Sound for our wonderful music and next till next week. <laughs>